everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to talk about drafting white-green in Crimson Vow. This is the last archetype remaining to discuss in the format, and it is not an appropriate time necessarily to say last but not least. I suppose it is technically not the least winning archetype according to 17 Lambs. It narrowly edges out blue-green, which wins 53.6% of the time. Uh, Green-white is tied with green-black at 53.7% of the time. So negligibly better, though it is drafted considerably more often than green-blue and green-black, and even more than red-white. I, I like to try to remind people the notes are available on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes for patrons to follow along with if they uh, like to be reminded that they can do that. That's the thing. The big picture um, analysis on green-white is that it's not very good. And the reason is that the color pair was designed and balanced around uh, the training mechanic being its thing, but the cards with training were simply overcosted. Whatever amount of mana R&D decided the word training should cost you to put on a creature was more than it should. So like a lot of the creatures that have training would be good if they were maybe like 1-1 one, one bigger, but training is not as good as being 1-1 one, one bigger. And so cards are just underpowered. And then there are a bunch of synergies that assume that you're going to like play training creatures and get counters on them because of that. But those synergies don't work. So the whole like design of green-white was basically just a design failure. It assumed a play pattern would exist and be possible that simply isn't. And the result of that is that there are a bunch of cards that are traps, which is something that as a designer you want to avoid giving to players. You want your signposts to tell players things that they can and should actually do in the set rather than like leading them astray and tricking them into like trying to make something happen that's going to train wreck their draft if they don't know the format very well. I, I think that when discussing like how well constructed is Crimson Vow as a draft environment, it's hard not to ding the format for that. But that's a separate question from the generally more pertinent question, how fun is Crimson Vow to draft? And it's easy to have fun drafting Crimson Vow and just not play Green White. From like a design, like an objective design sensibilities standpoint or something, when talking about just like how well made is this set, that's something that I can't really like, that I, I wouldn't be inclined to overlook. Anyway, none of that's really relevant to if for some reason you find yourself drafting Green White, how do you do it? which is the main question that I'm setting out to answer in these, this series. Though, obviously, another part of it is, in a draft, how do you approach it? When should you draft green-white? And often, the answer to when should you draft a given color combination is, well, if you're seeing a bunch of the like signposts for that uh, color combination, that probably tells you no one at the table is drafting it, and that means the cards that were designed for that strategy are going to be available. And... None of that applies here. If you're seeing late Sigardian Paladins, 
that doesn't mean anything. Someone might be drafting green-white and just know that Sigardian Paladin's not very good and not prioritize it, or might be trying to table it even if they do like it. If you get various things that like talk about humans as a type or plus one, plus one counters as a synergy, you shouldn't then try to find more humans and more plus one, plus one counters because all of that stuff just doesn't work the way that the set implies that it should, which means that when you're drafting green-white, you're not drafting it based on the explicit synergies in the set. There are, to my mind, two relevant major divergent paths that you can take when drafting green-white. The first, and I believe more common and more influential on the stats, if you look at like the stats on 17 lands, is to draft green-white pretty similarly to green-black. White and black are actually structurally very similar in this set. They both offer like life gain and good removal. And you can pair either one with green cards as a way to just kind of like hang out and cast large creatures and answer your opponent's stuff and then expect your large creatures to beat your opponent's remaining creatures after you kill their best creatures with your white or black removal. You can just prioritize the removal that's available to you. Wolf Strike, a Sigardian Imprisonment, and Fierce Retribution. And just play green-white as like a mid-range big creature deck. You can, I mean, really like any of Abzan can just kind of function in this like Abzan space where you don't have to be all three of the colors. You can be any two of them and they can play with kind of that same mentality. And that's one approach. And if you're on that approach, you shouldn't really be worrying a lot about synergy. You should just be taking powerful creatures and like whatever removal you see. And if you're in that space and you like to uh, reference the stats to help you with your drafts, you can certainly, you know, just like reference uh, the win rates of the cards in green, white on 17 lands, basically follow that. And it'll basically tell you here are the cards that are kind of just like independently like low synergy, better in green-white. And if you draft according to like the 17 land stats, it will mostly guide you to like green-white mid-range control. I don't think that that's a good way to draft green-white unless you have really powerful cards. Ideally, that means uh, some of the super, super strong green-white bombs or green or white bombs, you know, like a caretaker and Catilda uh, and stuff like that. Something where you have a reason to play this longer game where you're, you know, answering your opponent's stuff and just, you know, playing magic, playing, you know, normal, limited, whatever. You can get away with doing this if you just have a bunch of, you know, premium uncommons, dormant groves, angelic overseers, infestation experts, brambleworm type cards. If you just have like a good number of those that give you a lot of late game power and inevitability, and you're just seeing the green and white removal, you you can do this. I personally, if I'm trying to be green white, that's not what I'm going to try to do. But that's kind of a weird place to be because if I'm trying to be green white, that means I'm not green white because bombs pushed me there. I'm green white because I want to do the thing I'm going to talk about, maybe, or, I mean, so the other way to do it is to 
focus on having the lowest curve and being the most aggressive deck in the format. If you do that, then the training cards are acceptable. They're not good, but they are fine. If you get, in particular, multiple traveling ministers or snarling wolves, then the one, two, and three mana creatures that have training, you can actually use reasonably well. The trick is how dependent you are on traveling minister and snarling wolf. And obviously, you know, like Torrens or whatever, the green-white legend rare would go a long way to improving a deck like this. But I basically think that the like low curve aggro version of green-white, the reason to like draft this if you're just drafting naturally is like if you just start with a few traveling ministers and you can't find a reason to go into a different color. I think that it's okay to like go into green if it's open and try to draft this way. And when I say try to draft this way, I should explain more of what's going on here. Basically, green-white played as a control deck, I think is all about common removal and uncommon or rare creatures. None of the common creatures are going to make your deck better except maybe Weaver of Blossoms, like the Mana Werewolf. And I guess uh, Spore Crawler is probably pretty good. But like basically, you're just trying to play the like strong uncommons and common removal and trying to win on your like card quality. And the way that you're going to have better card quality than your opponent is because like a lot of uncommons in your colors happen to be passed to you because other people are trying to avoid green or whatever. If you're trying to win the game with commons and you're trying to draft green-white, then you want a low curve and a lot of tricks. That raises the open question, why would you try to do this? And the answer is, well, in my experience, I was trying to do it because I was about to record a podcast about green-white, and I wanted to see if my theory about how to draft an aggressive green-white deck would work. And I would say that it played out, uh, I did two drafts this way. I went 6-3 in one and 2-3 in the other. The one that I went 2-3, my losses were all, I was uh, tight enough on land that I couldn't double spell and my opponent didn't stumble. They like, they basically were just able to spend more mana than me because they drew more lands than I did and they started early. And so I couldn't like get ahead and pressure them. And then I just like had too many cards uh, stuck in my hand. You could play more lands to try to avoid that problem, but I think that would be a mistake. I think the the purpose of the deck is to have a lot of like cheap spells and leverage casting multiple spells per turn. And if you go to too many lands and too many cheap spells, your deck as a whole is too low impact and you just run out of stuff to do in too large a portion of the games. You want to draw like four lands so that you can double spell properly and you care about like drawing two of each of your colors so that you can like double spell in either color or whatever but you know not all your draws are perfect in magic and this is a deck that like needs to curve out pretty well to like capitalize on what it's trying to do and it's very 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 good against people who stumble a little bit but if your opponent's draw is good you might have problems the philosophy here there's a lot more to say about how to draft this deck if you want to try to do this I specifically target precisely 15 lands, 15 creatures, seven tricks, and then three flex slots for like removal or auras or equipment or something like that. And that is basically just like copy pasted formula from uh, a way that I have had in mind to draft green whites 
for 20 years. Like I drafted Mirrodin, Mirrodin, Darksteel exactly this way a lot and really liked the way that played. And it just kind of works in formats with uh, solid tricks and random if, like one and two mana green and white creatures. And this format does actually have legitimately good tricks. Massive Might, Adamant Will, and Witch's Web play pretty well here. They all give you relevant abilities in addition to the stats. And those relevant abilities, having like a lot of access to all of them, lets you like leverage those things pretty well. Then like Minister is like a great card for making sure that you can keep attacking with your little creatures so that they don't get blanked. Snarling Wolf just has like built-in pump spells so it can punch above its weight class and turn on your training stuff. Even Unholy Efficient is very good to, if your flex slots are equipment or auras, it uses those really well. Also, when your curve's super low, sometimes you, you know, like don't have anything to do late game and it's really convenient mana sync. So Unholy Efficient actually plays quite well in this deck. And then when you're prioritizing all these like one and two mana creatures, it's honestly just not that bad to pre-combat cast a pump spell on a creature to put counters on your training guys when you know that you're going to get through or you're forcing your opponent to trump block or something. So when I'm in this deck, I'm specifically prioritizing pump spells over removal. Like I'll take Massive Might, which is why I've been adamant will, directly over Imprisonments and Wolf Strikes when they're in the same pack because I want to be able to use... First of all, casting two spells in a turn is huge. Second, I want to be able to use these to put counters on my training creatures. Third, and most importantly, I want all these to double as burn spells. I'm really, like, this is a deck that plays like a red aggro deck, where it's all about just, like, getting your opponent's life total down and figuring out when you can, like, kill them from your hand. Where, like, you really want to be able to just kind of, like, ignore your own life total because you have all this, like, hidden haste damage in the form of your combat tricks. And Massive Might's very important there for getting like extra damage from the trample. The common creatures that I wanna play, Minister and Snarling Wolf are just more important than every other creature. And then Dawnheart Disciple is the most important two mana creature. Spore Crawler is the most important three mana creature. Drugsville Infantry, Parish Blade, Trainee, and Sporeback Wolf are all acceptable two mana creatures. Apprentice Sharpshooter, Griff Rider, and Militia Rallier are all acceptable threes. And then if you have to play a four like Hookhand Mariner or Heron of Hope, that's fine. But I, I prefer to like not do that if I can. Notably, I think you would prefer to avoid Kindly Ancestor and Weaver of Blossoms. They're both really good cards, but they only have two powers. So they don't help you with your training creatures. And you really just want to be able to prioritize having training guys and having high power creatures and doing damage to your opponent. Like you don't plan to like want to tap a weaver for mana and you don't plan to care about gaining life with Kindly Ancestor. Nurturing Presence is another totally solid two drop. You're very, very likely to have a one drop to play it on and the evasion's great and the like pump is good to train your guys. I'd say Nurturing Presence is maybe the second best two drop after Dawnheart Disciple at common. And I think it's totally fine to play one Brambler. One in a green, two one uh, equipment that equips for free and you can pass it for four mana. And I also think that Sheltering Vows is an acceptable playable here. 
You want to make sure that you have at least 15 creatures because you have so many cards that require having a creature in play to be able to use them, like all of your non-creature spells. And this is the other reason that it's so important to play a low land count is if you cut, like if you want to add lands, you have to remove something and you can't remove creatures because you are just not going, like you're going to draw hands that are all pump spells and your deck literally won't function if you go below 15 creatures and you really don't want to remove a trick because the whole point of the deck is to always be able to attack with your smaller creatures into your opponent's bigger creatures because you have a trick and you can kill whatever they block with. And so you really need to draw multiple tricks in a game. And uh, just to be able to play enough of the cards that you need, uh, you kind of have to cut some lands. Now, obviously, I did say there are three flex, flex slots. If one of those is a land because your curve is a little bit higher if you end up with, you know, two four drops and a five drop or something because you just got like Hook Hand, Mariner, Dormant Grove, and Angelic Quartermaster. And you're like, these are too good not to play. It's okay to go to 16 lands to play those. But I'm not going to prioritize taking those like powerful you know, four and five mana cards. When I, the deck that I played this way, they got six wins, like, you know, a bunch of random cheap commons and tricks. I had two infestation experts in my sideboard that I didn't play. And I think it's totally fine to just like not play that stuff. So, like I said, I don't think that you should like set out to do this, which means that it's weird to end up here. I think Torrens exactly likes this deck a lot and it's like the best way to draft to maximize Torrens. And I think that, like, the deck is probably legitimately pretty good if you have a lot of Traveling Ministers and Snarling Wolves. But, like, it's not like if you draft one Traveling Minister, this is what you should play. And if you have a lot of Traveling Ministers, you're going to do just as well with, like, blue cards or black cards or something. So I don't have, like, a great explanation as to, like, when or why you should ever try to draft Green-White this way. But uh, if... You are ever in a spot like me where you just want to play green white for some reason, I recommend trying this out. And if that doesn't happen in this format, well, I mentioned that um, as we get to the end of this format, I want to try to talk about things that have applications in more other places because this whatever you learn about this format is not going to help you for very much longer. Like I said, the theory here is all you know, based on playing with completely different sets. And this was all just basically like plug and play from my experience in other formats. So I would say that like everything I'm saying about this approach to green-white, where you prioritize removal over tricks to be able to like multi-spell and be able to like keep attacking and to have like this reach to clear out opponent out of nowhere and stuff. I think that all of that applies pretty well to any format where you might be playing green-white. It happens to have a little bit of extra play and synergy in this format because uh, these like poorly costed, bad training cards that other people shouldn't put in their deck do actually work notably well when you're approaching things this way. So this is not something that I think you should like should be your go-to way to draft green white in every format, but I think that it is a good way to use the commons in this format and good to have in your arsenal for drafting green white um, just in magic in general. I think that covers my spiel here. So it's gonna open it up to questions from chat. So anyone who has any questions, comments, uh, Concerns or experiences with green-white, feel free to 
message and chat, including if you've already done so, make sure I know what's still relevant. And uh, while I'm waiting for people to hit me with those, I do want to thank my new patrons this week, Reptune, Repeat, and Joseph. Thank you very much for the support. Anyone else who's interested in supporting the program, please check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All right, let me uh, take a second here to check out these questions. First question, had a couple drafts where at some point I realized I'd found myself in low curve humans deck. Uh, the backbone of the deck is Minister, Don Hurt, Disciple, and the uncommon 3-2 that draws a card if you have a human, and Sigardian Paladin with tricks. This is performed well. Do you just end up there by pure coincidence uh, when it matchup comes together? Is this something... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very much in line with what I was talking about. I do think, you know, obviously that 3-2 is better than Spore Crawler. Um, so that, that would be a great uncommon for the deck. And... As I mentioned, Dawn Heart Disciple and Traveling Minister are like the best one in two drops. So yeah, the, what, what you're describing is very much the core of this deck. And I do think that like seeing a bunch of those cards in particular is what would get you there. And I mean, like, yeah, basically like if this is in your play style, I think that it's very reasonable to just be like, all right, the good humans cards uh, like you know, take them over like other filler type cards if they're there. And some portion of the time that's going to lead me to green white and like draft it this way. And I think that it will, you know, my experience with this archetype was like hard forcing it for no reason. I think if you're getting into it because the cards are actually there, uh, your results should be better on average. And my experience with hard forcing it for no reason was still to like end up with a playable version of the deck. So I think like if it's actually open, if they're actually good on commons for the deck that you're seeing, I, I really don't think it's a bad deck to draft. I just it's a hard deck for me to figure out like what gets you into this and why. And so to your experience about like does it just magically come together? At least for me, the way that I prioritize cards in this format, yeah, that's what would have to happen because I just value other stuff more. If this deck is very much to your playstyle, I would say try it out, figure out if you want to like try to put yourself there more often. Wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Next up, thoughts on ceremonial knife in this archetype? Is it good enough to take a flex slot? Yeah, I think it's fine to play ceremonial knife instead of a different piece of equipment. I think ceremonial knife is probably about as good as bramble armor. What is specifically green-white about the formula versus, say, green-red or red-white? So basically the primary strength of red is usually that it has good removal. So the trick, like the tricks and creatures are a little bit worse. They have a little bit less power, cost a little bit more mana. Uh, the tricks are a little bit less flexible. And the removal is just like more of a strength of what you're doing. When that's the case, you just like draft slightly differently. I mean, there are, it is certainly possible to draft trick heavy versions of red green or uh, red white. I would say like with red white aggro and Kaldheim, for anyone who remembers that podcast, there's the discussion about like which of the red white aggro decks are like tricks based decks and which one are equipment based decks. And you certainly could lean into tricks. In this case, I think it's really just like Minister and Snarling Wolf support the like training plan better than Epicure. Uh, Massive Might, uh, Adamant Will, and Witch's Web are all just like better cards than Sure Strike. And uh, like Dawnheart Disciple is like 
has better synergies with like the three, two that draws a card human than um, like the red two drops do. Um, it, it's, you can certainly have a similar mindset with red cards, but the cards are just like, you know, a fraction of a point better at doing this exact thing when they're the green and white cards. The assumption here that I have a lot of evidence to inform my uh, style of 15 creatures, seven tricks, curve stops at three across various experience and magic, uh, which is roughly accurate. And the question here is what makes you more interested in playing four or five drops? The answer is that I don't want to play four and five drops if I can avoid it if I'm trying to play 15 lands. And like I said, with this archetype, trying to play 15 lands is about consistently making room for the other stuff that I want and being able to have a really low curve and not flood out or run out of stuff to spend my mana on. Like basically across the board, magic is kind of fundamentally about maximizing your ability to spend mana over the course of however long a game is. And I think that you will, in general, be able to spend more total mana across the course of a game with 15 lands and no four drops than with 16 lands and some four drops when you're playing a bunch of one and two mana creatures and tricks. If I'm playing 16 lands, then I'm more comfortable with some four drops, maybe a five drop. If I'm playing 16, 17 lands, then I'm comfortable with, you know, like four, five, four, four drops, two, five drops kind of range. I think that the biggest factors there are just number of lands you're trying to play and then how strong the four and five drops are. And the thing that should most inform whether it's correct to play the extra lands, to play the extra expensive creatures is really like how aggressive is your deck? How quickly can you count on ending games? If you have the like good trample tricks and like, you know, five one drops and aggressive two drops such that you're like, yeah, I'm just going to be able to kill someone with my cheap cards because these things like do a lot of damage and participate in combat well, then I don't want to like go to more expensive stuff. But if my cards are a little bit weaker, a little bit worse at pushing through, I maybe end up with like Drogs, Skull, Infantries, and Sporeback Wolves that are a little bit worse at pushing damage than Dawnheart Disciples. I maybe end up short a few tricks and I realize oh, these two drops aren't going to be able to attack once my opponent just like plays a three mana creature and I'm just going to have to sit here. I'm going to need a little bit more power to actually be able to close the game. So basically, like if you're trying to be an aggressive deck, you need to think about like realistically, the, are the cheap cards that I have high enough impact to win a game? And then if they're not, uh, can I, if I put more total power in my deck by going higher up the curve, Will that let me win a game? And it's very easy, actually, for the answer to be yes, if your cheap cards aren't good enough to end the game. But I guess the point of my suggestion is to say, if you really lean into it, I do think that it's possible to get enough power to end the game in your one, two, and three mana creatures by very aggressively combining them with tricks. Do there happen to be any creatures you think play well with pump spells uh, the way that Fearless Liberator did in Call Time? So that would be creatures that uh, particularly punish or incentivize blocking, like ones that ask your opponent to block them so that you can uh, use your trick. I mean, obviously Kindly Ancestor does, but not in a way that you care about uh, because I you want to avoid caring about your life total. You don't really have access to Trample. You don't care about lifelink. You don't really have First Strike. You don't have Menace. Color combination is actually remarkably bad at keywords, which is part of why it's weak. Normally, like... 
If a color combination is based on putting plus one plus one counters on things, you would think that it would have more creatures with keywords to get more value out of those plus one plus one counters. And it just kind of doesn't. There's like a little bit of flying, a little bit of reach. It's very reasonable to like think about and look for the thing that you're asking about and looking for, but this format's really bad at providing it. The best answer is training, where it's just like, oh, if you don't deal with this, it's going to get out of hand. I have to make this like bad attack to grow my creature. And then they're like, oh, cool. I'll punish you for making this bad attack to grow your creature. And you're like, ah, I had a trick. The main thing that tricks do here that's like exceptional in any way is just like let you get a training counter where you otherwise wouldn't by playing it before you attack, which is not a good way to use tricks anyway. So, I mean, my answer is no in a way that's a little bit problematic and part of why this deck isn't like more good or a higher priority like if the format actually had creatures that used tricks particularly well then this might actually be a thing that more people did or that i saw more of a reason to do next question it feels like most of the cards for the loaded the ground deck can be found yes they're all pretty late picks does that make pack one pick one torrens a reason to force it yeah, I think that, like, yes, I, I think Torrens is a very strong card. I think you'll have a consistent deck around it if you take it. I think that I would describe it more as a reason to move into it than to force it. I would still want to have, like, a little bit of flexibility if, like, you know, someone's in my color, I'd want to get out of it or something. Like, I don't think Torrens is so good that you should just go full blinders. But I do think that, you know, if you start with a Torrens... You should keep your eye out for the better cards in this archetype. You should like try to prioritize tricks and like try to naturally navigate your way into this spot. Any thoughts on how to build around multiple Heron of Hopes in green-white? Yeah, I mean, that's just like play it. That's the, just the other kind of green-white deck that I was talking about. You just play it like an Abzan deck. So the same way that you would play uh, white-black with multiple Herons of Hope, Find traveling ministers and kindly ancestors and random powerful late game stuff. Know that your opponent's not going to kill you for a while. So you're going to like live to have time to cast, you know, your bramble worms or whatever and pay a lot more attention to in total how impactful is this card and a little bit less attention to how cheap is this card and just go the total other direction, which green white is totally capable of doing. What signs should I look for in other sets in general to indicate that it's reasonably likely to work out anything beyond good and good one and two drops tricks? Obviously any kind of mechanic that encourages attacking uh, training counts as that is a good reason. Like if the set is saying, I will pay you for attacking with your creatures every turn, the way to say, okay, great, I want to be able to attack with my creatures every turn. How do I do that? Is play more tricks. And so anytime there's a mechanic that keys off, did you attack? Are you attacking? Something like that. Um, that would be a good reason to like think that this might be a particularly good set for it. In general, like good aggressive keywords, things that like, you know, naturally benefit more from getting pumps for a little while. So like good rate lifelink creatures, good rate trample creatures. Just like creatures that hit hard and don't have a lot of evasion so that you're going to have to like get in combat with them. Um, those would be the my, my first thoughts on like what to look for other than just like, are these good one and two mana creatures? Also, it's slightly different than good one and two mana creatures, but not very different. But a thing to look for, honestly, is just, is there a two power one, one drop? Like just an uncommon two one is like pretty significant, you know, if for some reason there's a common 2-1. Those can be, like, pretty important to just, like, how much early damage output do you get when you start attacking with this kind of deck. Next question, do you mulligan more aggressively with these low-curve 15 land decks than we usually should in limited? Well, you definitely don't want to mulligan more than you should, but does this deck mulligan more than other decks? Yes, 
Uh, yeah, I would say it does. You're less concerned about like, you know, this is very much on the tempo rather than nutrition side of the coin. Like you're about ending the game quick, quickly. If you have like a handful of pump spells and no creatures, you basically can't keep it because you're not going to get in any of the early damage that's going to get your opponent in range of like finishing them off. Also, it's very, very hard to keep a hand that only has one color of mana because you want to know that you can just like use your cards in a timely fashion. So yeah, these, these decks do uh, kind of struggle with needing to mulligan a little more aggressively. I think that's going to wrap this up for this week. Next week will be right before the release of Double Feature. I'm going to try to do a podcast about something relating to Double Feature. I'm not sure if that's going to be anticipating Double Feature on Wednesday or if it's going to be uh, right after like first impressions after playing with Double Feature recorded a little bit later in the week. Uh, so just follow me on whatever, wherever, wherever you might see my uh, see announcements from me, my stream, Discord, Twitter, for an update on what's going on with that, when I'll be recording it. But having finished up Crimson Vow, I will be moving on to saying something or other about Double Feature for next week. So for anyone who's interested in trying that format out on Arena or in paper, I think there are a lot of cool interactions between these sets. Um, I did play with the two sets together a little bit in the Sealed Decathlon event on Arena and uh, found it pretty fun and interesting. So I'm looking forward to diving into Double Feature at least a little bit myself. So uh, that's where we're going to be for next week. Um, Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I'll uh, be back with more then. Me.